1: from PS Literary Agency everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hook segment. As per usual, we are diving straight in. Cece, why don't you get us started with our first query letter? Absolutely. Let's do this. Dear Ms. Waters, I am writing to you because I
2: loved We Came Here to Forget by Andrea Dunlop, and I am hoping to interest you in my upmarket novel To the End of the Earth and Back Again, which is complete at 95,000 words. Thank you in advance for considering my work. Josie's daughter is going to Antarctica. Of course she is. Josie has so worked hard to assure their safety in Santa Barbara. She bought a nice house with an alarm system and traded running outdoors for video workouts at an all-woman's gym. She vigilantly checked that her daughter Louise wore roofy polished to parties and spied on Louise's dates with her dad. And after all that, Louise is willingly placing herself in harm's way. If only she would disinherit her sense of adventure the way Josie has by joining her father's research trip to the bottom of the earth. Louise will be traveling to an extreme environment with an extreme narcissist. Josie has never told Louise what her father is capable of. What kind of mother would but now Louise, Josie learns, believes she is going to help her father save the planet from glacial melting and has already been working in his lab for months. She even refers to Antarctica as the ice. She's so in the know. How long before Louise experiences who her father really is? With tensions between mother and daughter already high, Josie will have to figure out how to keep her daughter safe from 10,000 miles away. When Josie's best friend, another Antarctic researcher, refuses to babysit Louise, her best friend's words, Josie's words were, keep an eye on. Josie knows what she must do. She has always done anything to protect her daughter, but to do so now, she'll have to take a risk herself. After 20 years of not working with men, not dating, and not taking Louise camping, no matter how she begged, Josie is going to Antarctica too. To the End of the Earth and Back Again is a novel about the ways trauma can permeate our lives and what happens when we peel off our protective layers so we can come back to ourselves. It may appeal to readers of domestic fiction with an adventurous spirit such as works by Maria Semple and Jay Courtney Sullivan. I would be thrilled and grateful for the opportunity to send you a partial or full manuscript. I am a Californian with a doctorate in marine biology, but I currently live in Paris, where I write when not trying to understand my daughter's French homework. In 2005, I spent three months in Antarctica ice fishing and
1: munching Cadbury bars. Sincerely, Elizabeth Jobert. Thank you so much, Cece. That's awesome. All right, Carly, this was- was directed at you so why don't you tell us what you think of the query letter well she said i would be thrilled and grateful for the opportunity to
0: send you a partial or full manuscript and i would say i would be thrilled and grateful for you to send it to me i really really love this one i thought it was super well done as as was mentioned at the top you know she mentioned she really enjoyed my client andrew dunlop we came here to forget and obviously whenever you're talking about my clients it's near and dear to my heart so yes i think this is um, definitely something up that alley so i absolutely agree all of that said i think the queries Too long. I will say that. I do think, you know, we have one, two, three, four ish body paragraphs, which is a lot. I definitely think we could probably summarize each of these paragraphs itself into one sentence each. And then, therefore, we'd have like a smaller body paragraph. I'd cut things like the rhetorical questions, all of these little things. I think it's trying to be voicey, which isn't always a bad thing. But as we said before on this podcast, we need to um, encourage concision over voiciness. And so we need to figure out that balance a little bit in this one. But ultimately, I think it's great. You know, I think the comps, the Maria Simple, I think it's quite obvious comp, but a great one. And I think it fits this really well. So we will give a big round of applause for uh, Bravo. Uh,
2: well done. I really enjoyed this one.
1: Wonderful, Excellent feedback for our listener there who submitted. All right, Cece, what was your take on it?
2: I also thought it was great. Like, again, because we are giving feedback, I, I agree that it's a little bit too long as well. Um, but just to add something different, there's a line where she says it may appeal to readers of domestic fiction. I would just say it will appeal, right? Like, let's be more intentional. Let's be more confident. And I, I understand why she wrote May, by the way, but I still think that it's, it's nice. And I also think that her last paragraph deserves also another round of applause because I thought it was really sweet the way she kept it short, but also added like fun, quirky tidbits about herself. As someone with very dark taste, when I heard that this man was a narcissist, I was like, I want to know how, you know, I want to know how dark we're talking about, but I I don't think that I necessarily needed to know that in the query letter, I would be very happy to just keep on reading and find out what exactly makes him a narcissist. Like how bad on the spectrum are we talking about? So
1: that's something that I was curious about, but yeah, overall, great job. Great. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, what did you think of those opening pages? To set the scene for the listener, I'll describe a little
0: bit about what we're reading. So we have the mother character drifting off to sleep on the couch. Waiting up for the daughter, and uh, and then the daughter walks in the door, and it's a very sweet little scene. It explains a lot of their dynamic and their relationship. The mother's waiting up for the character, obviously showing a lot of love and compassion, but also over attentiveness as a parent, because we find out she's college age, which means you know she probably doesn't need her mom waiting up for her. So so yeah, we kind of just get into that, that whole dynamic. A lot of what's covered in the query, I feel like we cover in these in these five pages, but we're getting to you know the the juice of the plot right off the bat, which is just sitting her mother down and telling her that she's going off to Antarctica. So yeah, I thought it was extremely well done. We're really grounded in scene. We learn a lot about both, about both characters and I think it's really strong. I, I don't have any critiques. I'm scrolling through my, my comments uh, on this manuscript, but I'm, I'm not seeing any notes in the
2: margins. So um, so bravo. Cece, what do you think? I also really liked this. So one thing that's really, really well done is there's a great mix of inner life and, and scene, right? Like we are in scene, yes, but we still get so much access to her thoughts, which is incredibly important. And one of the things that the protagonist is thinking about her daughter, Daughter is hmm, maybe she'd been drinking maybe she'd been making out with a new boyfriend but because i don't quite know the protagonist yet i'm not sure whether she's an overprotective mom who's concerned that her daughter like won't be in harm's way harm's way meaning like she won't be roofied hence the roofy nail polish uh, which i did not know existed but that sounds cool uh sad that we needed but cool or if she's conservative i guess my question is is this someone who would have a problem with her making out with her boyfriend right like is this someone who has a problem with with her daughter drinking a little bit. Like, I guess, I guess I'm trying to figure out whether it's just like a, like a straight up safety thing that she's concerned about, or if there's also a conservative thing. I'm guessing it's the former, but it's a question I had and questions are a good thing because it makes us keep reading so that we can find out the answers. There was also part of the dialogue where she said, where the daughter said, I switched to environmental policy. And I was thinking to myself, wouldn't her mom already know that because her mom was like super involved with her daughter's life. So, so maybe don't, don't say that maybe the, the mom can think, oh my gosh, this is why she's switch to environmental policy. Another thought I had was wouldn't the mom who's like so on it, right? Like so concerned with her daughter's safety, wouldn't she be thinking of ways to like make the daughter stay? Because she accepts it really quickly. She goes, well, there's there's Ada, that's her friend who's, who's who will also be in Antarctica. Thank God for that. But Peter's presence gave me no comfort. And in my mind, I was going, hold on, this woman, I mean, I barely know her, but I'm getting the feeling that she's someone who doesn't just accept things. Wouldn't she like be trying to think of ways like incentives to make her daughter stay she's accepting it a little bit too quickly or maybe not maybe this is in keeping with her personality so again I would just keep on reading to find out I definitely get the Maria Semple comparison I think that there's a there's a quirkiness in the voice that's really really appealing and I uh, yeah I really enjoyed this brava like author you did a great job
1: just something that Cece said now that I just like to add to is remember to give your characters those moments of reaction to action so big things like an inciting incident or a key event that kind of thrusts the character into what's to come, etc. They need some time to react to that. So often it's like preparation. They're preparing for this thing, or it's like a retaliation or running away from it, or they're in denial or something. And often that's just like a page, or maybe it's just a few paragraphs, etc. So, you know, don't forget to take those beats in the story to give your characters opportunity to respond to things. Carly?
0: Yeah, as we're talking about this, definitely, um, you know, getting me thinking about it. I feel that we're kind of at the point with the mom character where she's probably debating how much she needs to be involved with her daughter's life. And so that's kind of the sense that I was getting was internally, she's also grappling with how in control she needs to be and wants to be. So this, there's the staying up late waiting for the daughter, but then there's quickly letting her go to Antarctica or accepting that she's going to Antarctica. So I think uh, Bianca's right, like we, we need to, the, the mom character needs to react to that Action in the sense of is she accepting it or not, or what is she you know grappling with? It could just be one line of like I'm you know I'm trying to let go and blah 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 blah. So yeah,
1: and often the way characters react, the things that they say is very different to what they're feeling and thinking, and that always creates an interesting dynamic and an interesting tension in the story and conflict. When you see a character smiling and going oh that's great I'm supportive of you, and in their heads they're like oh shit what am I going to do about this or whatever. So so definitely show those kinds of things. As as well. Okay, Carly, let's dive into that second query letter. Will you read it for us, please? Here we go. Dear Bianca, Cecilia, and Carly, the Shit No
0: One Tells You About Writing podcast has been inspirational for me as I put the final touches on my debut novel that's a first-person narrative standalone. A Thing of Soft Misnomer is a completed 80,000-word commercial women's fiction in the vein of On the Bright Side of Going Dark by Kelly Harms meets The Bean Trees by Barbara Kingsolver. 36-year-old Lucy Lavelle hasn't seen or heard from her husband, Robbie, since he ran out of the psychologist's office upon discovering their nine-year-old son has autism, or what's formerly known as Asperger's. Left to raise a child alone in Venice Beach, Lucy dropped out of her graduate program in art therapy and hasn't picked up a paintbrush since. Lucy has lived in marriage purgatory while navigating the world for her autistic son, Max, who's obsessed with stars, the kind in the sky, not the ones in Hollywood. Lucy takes her son to the Griffith Observatory on her birthday. As they get to the front of the line for viewing the telescope, an angelic blonde movie star named Sassy Stapleton cuts in line in front of them. Max is livid, so Lucy sarcastically strikes up a deal with the board of Starlet. Tony-something Sassy can follow them around for the night, pretending to be a member of the paparazzi if she lets Max go in front of her to use the telescope. Sassy loves the idea of being someone else. She ends up taking the public bus home with them to Venice Beach, where Sassy offers $100,000 to Lucy in exchange for getting her soul back. Lucy jumps at the opportunity, but then learns that her husband has been presumed dead in the waters off the coast of Mendocino, a bucolic village well known as a romantic getaway about four hours north of San Francisco. Lucy is thrilled to know where her husband has been hiding out for the past two years, but now she's hesitant to take the starlet's job offer. Contemplating her next move, Lucy meets an elderly man named Rupert who is painting on the beach. He's traveled to Venice from Northern California with his grown son, Hawk, who lazily reads a book in the shade of a beach umbrella. The elderly man's advice sets Lucy in motion. She drives her deadbeat husband's 1967 VW Samba bus up the Pacific Coast Highway to Mendocino with her autistic son and the spoiled starlet disguised as a nanny, albeit an incompetent one. To the outside world, they appear as misfits, but in truth, they are a thing of soft misnomers. Along the way, they keep running into the elderly man and his son, An adventure that leads to heartache, friendship, and the possibility of new love as Lucy finds more than her deadbeat husband in Medellin. My novel is written from my learned experiences of being a mother of an autistic son who is now a successful young adult. Motherhood, in and of itself, it's in challenges, but the uncharted journey of raising an autistic child has been underexplored in contemporary novels. Most recently, I was appalled by the portrayal of a caregiving and autistic child in Sia's movie, Music especially as it was told by someone who didn't have the lived experiences. I began writing a thing of soft misnomer after completing a Master of Arts in Individualized Studies, Creative Nonfiction and Motherhood Studies from Goddard College. I revised my novel many times over the years as I learned more about storytelling while being a social media intern at Elephant Journal, where I wrote numerous essays about relationships and mothering. One article about relationships reached over 241,000 views with one3 Hey, shares. Currently, I'm working on a novel about Lucy's younger sister, Tabby, as well as a memoir about my wild childhood growing up in the Sierras of Northern California. I appreciate your time reading my query and the first five pages. Sincerely, Desi Susanna Wright.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Right, Cece, let's begin with you. What did you think of that query letter? So I I think there's a
2: lot of potential here. Um, I enjoyed the opening paragraph. I was really intrigued by the title. I did think that it was really, really long. I fully understand the challenges of writing a query letter. It's like pulling teeth. The only thing worse is the synopsis. However, it's a part of the process, right? So it's like applying to college or worse. But this is 661 words long. For comparison, another query letter that we just critiqued and that Carly did mention was also a, a tad long and I agreed was closer to 400. It was like in the 390 something. So you do want to try to keep your query letter a little bit shorter. The sweet spot, I think, is in between 300 to 400 words. But anything up to 500 is typically okay. This was a tad too long, and I empathize because I am powers of brevity are not my strong suit. But anyway, so I also thought that the plot was confusing. So for something that was really, really long, I should be, you know, understanding what the plot is about, and I, I wasn't. It almost read like a synopsis. Actually, that's I think that's a fair thing to say. Like we got so many story beats that were completely unnecessary. I didn't understand what the author meant by she ends up taking the public bus home with them to Venice Beach. Where Sassy offers one hundred thousand dollars to Lucy in exchange for getting her soul back. I didn't like. Is this surreal? I don't. I don't get it. There's also so many details that I don't think we need. Things like like we meet an elderly man who's traveled from Venice to Northern California with his son, grown son Hawk, who lazily reads a book in the shade of a breech umbrella. I think the thing to consider here is what about your story is essential to create a compelling setup, right? Like something that will make me go, ooh. I wonder what happens next. And I would recommend revising this, um, maybe even starting from scratch, not because there's good stuff here that you can use. Sometimes when we start from scratch, we don't feel as attached to the stuff we've already written because it can be hard to delete a sentence. You worked hard on that sentence. You like it. You think it's important. But if you start from scratch and you really think to yourself, okay, I have two minutes to grab this reader's attention. What could I write that would be super compelling? I think that might be a good exercise. I also really appreciated that she shared like her personal experiences in writing this. I thought that was really sweet and I I, I commend authors for, for sharing lived experiences with us and I am really thankful for that. Another question about the plot. So when she f- when when the author mentions that we do find the deadbeat husband, is that like a spoiler? Like would were we supposed to think that he was dead? Because he was presumed dead. So if it's a spoiler, don't include spoilers. I am very against spoilers and query letters.
1: I'm the same even in my writing group. You know, we'll ask questions and they'll be like, Well, X, Y, and Z, it's about to happen. And I'm like, no, don't tell me because I can only read it once coming to it completely fresh and if I come to it with preconceived expectations then it's going to alter my experience of it definitely. Okay Carly what did you think? I echo a lot of the same
0: questions as Cece. I think this is incredibly interesting but I want to know more linearly what's going on. I just kind of need it laid out a bit more flatly for me. I have very basic questions about the premise which I probably shouldn't have. I I have questions about why the celebrity was even at the Griffith Observatory if she doesn't even want to be there. You know, if you're a celebrity, you don't have to go anywhere. You don't want to go unless you're doing sort of promo, which you're getting paid for, right? So, you know, there's no reason for anybody to be anywhere they don't want to be. And so kind of shoehorning, that's kind of one of my pet peeves, right? So just making it a bit more clear why everybody needs to be in this setup and this premise. I really love, love the theme of accidental friendships and like stumbling into unlikely pairings. I love that. I actually was just tweeting about that this week about how I want some some manuscripts like this. So, So all of this works for me, but in the sake of, is this a good query or not a good query. I think it just falls on the side of it just has some work to do to make it more clear and uh, compelling to why we actually need to read this book. You know, I think we need to get to some of the things a bit faster, like them getting on the road to Mendocino. I think there's just a lot we can cut, right? A lot we can rework. So I, I agree with Cece. We probably just need to do a little bit of a rewrite, not to say there's nothing worth keeping, but just to make it really clear. And you might just need somebody who hasn't read the book and doesn't know this project as intimately to just read this query and just kind of give you the beat by beat in terms of how to make it more clear. And I agree, it does read more like a synopsis. So there's nothing kind of clinically wrong with this by any means. It's more just how can we make it more
2: clear and more compelling? I was going to say that, you know, as my sister, my sister is a marketer and she's great at this stuff because- she has enough writing chops that she can like really write really well, but her brain is very analytical because she's a math person nowadays m- to work with marketing. You have to know all about like analyzing data, SEOs, etc. So, you know, it's, it's, it might be a good tip. Just go to the marketing people in your life. They're used to writing copy, And if, if you're lucky enough, like I am to have a sister who like worked for Google and stuff, they can like crunch the stuff for you, like crunch the, the, the.
1: awesome. Okay. So Cece, are you going to tell us what you think of those opening pages? I really liked the first line. It's, I
2: believe in marriage. I know it sounds cliche, but I do, especially in days like this. And I was very excited to go into this uh, scene with imbalance and tension because apparently the protagonist is telling us like, I really believe in marriage. So I was thinking, oh, this is something that she's holding on to, right? Because there's a big conflict or like a, an unsettling in, um, imbalance, I should say. And then we, we got a few paragraphs of the protagonist Anne, and her husband pushing a bike on the Venice Beach boardwalk. And it felt a little bit longer than it had to be. I think that we could just really condense this Um, We went back a little bit in time to before they had an issue with a flat tire. Yes. So we went a little bit back in time and we found out about the flat tire. We didn't really need this. We could just start with them arriving at the therapist's office because they are on their way to an appointment. Appointment, by the way, keeps being italicized. I don't think you need that. I think that the significance of the appointment is, is enough there's a little bit of repetition. So for example, on the second page, she mentions, we are late to the appointment with the child psychologist for the final report about a nine year old son, Max's unique way of being. And then in the following page, she tells us today's the day we get a clear picture about our son's unique way of being It's a very similar way. And first of all, we already know this information. Also, you don't need to repeat like the same, the exact same uh, language, I think. So I would like watch out for that. That's an example, but I would just give this a read-through to perhaps catch other instances where this happens. I enjoyed the husband who like makes up stories. Like when, when they're still chatting, there's a part where they look at a woman and he goes, oh, her story is amazing. She's an astrophysicist who spent six months on the International Space Station. Like he just, he's making stuff up. And that I think shows like a nice banter between the couple, which is obviously going to be important because at the end of the scene, he just, you know, walks away. Actually, he doesn't walk. And that's another thing. Another note I have. So right now, the line reads, Robbie grabs his porcelain cup off the oak coffee table and dashes out of the psychologist's office, slamming the door behind him. I'm wondering whether this was intentional because dashing, like uh, to me, I think of like running. That just seems a little comical. Like maybe that's the intention, right? But I think he probably like walked briskly, you know, at the most. I don't, I don't think that he dashed. But, but but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's that's the the intention. I think the emotion here could also come a little bit more to the surface, and I think that will happen once you. Take a look at this and like eliminate the repetition. You can maybe use that space to add a little bit more emotion. Another example of something I had to share on page five. There's a part that felt a little info dumpy. I kiss Robbie's cheek. He pulls me close, hugging me. You know that I'm right, darling. There's nothing wrong with Max. He's simply a genius. I was always this. I was. I was always smart as a kid. But look, I'm fine now. Just because you're a genius doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. And I think that we already knew that the husband didn't really believe in the diagnosis diagnosis. diagnosis, didn't think there was anything non-neurotypical about their child, didn't think that their child had any neurodiversion. So it's something that I don't think we need to to be said so explicitly. Okay, those are my notes.
1: Wonderful. Cece, thanks. Carly, what were your thoughts on those opening pages? I have this like push and pull kind of like tug of of war going back and forth between how much
0: I love all of the small details, but then there's just a couple I think we need to pull back. Like I loved the small details about the eucalyptus leaves and the... The aromatic smell of coffee beans and what they're wearing and I have somebody who's been to Venice Beach a few times like I really felt like we were there and I could really see where we were and I could get the like paint stained hands and jeans like riding on a bicycle kind of thing like that gave me a real vibe and and so I really got this sense that I was there and I wish I was there right now <laughs> so it did its job in terms of like really grounding me in place I thought that was great and this is so funny because I'm the one that always says we don't need italics but I really liked the little being late for the edge of sized size to point because if you're going to repeat the appointment, like if they had repeated the appointment without italics, it would have been like, okay, cut this. Like, it's just an appointment. Like, are you going to get a gynecological exam? Like, what's the deal with this appointment? You know what I mean? Um, But I liked that this appointment is italicized so that we understand like this is a very special appointment. So I'm redacting any of my, you know, has to be one way or the other way comments about italics because I actually did really like it here. So, So that was just a humorous moment for me. I had a general question about was, in the query, we know that this dad is a bit of a deadbeat. And, you know, we're, we're meeting a man that seems very loving and caring and compassionate with his wife, even if he's dismissive of this son. And so it could just be a case of eventually when this book comes out, that the cover copy has to be written much differently than this query is. But that's a packaging problem. That's a publishing problem. <laughs> that isn't this author's problem. But I'm just thinking about what is it that we know about this husband? Do we know too much or too little? And so I'm having a a bit of a you know is this the book that pitched to me problem I guess with with meeting this husband here but I really I really enjoyed it I agree with CC I think that there's a couple instances of you know the woman you know chewing on her bottom lip and the husband dashing and a little bit too much of that kind of like bodily stuff that I think writers try to really put us in the moment with so that's why I have a bit of a uh, you know a push and pull with with all of these these wonderful specifics but I think it's just a taste thing at the end of the day and and I really I really like these I
1: didn't really have a lot of notes so another another well done from me. Awesome. Great, Carly. Right. I will read the third query letter. Dear Miss Waters and Miss Lira, greetings from a starstruck devotee of the shit no one tells you about writing. Those typewriter clicks elicit a Pavlovian response. I'm seeking representation for my 111,000 word historical novel, Title X, which will appeal to readers of generational immigration stories like We Were the Lucky Ones by Georgia Hunter and The Seven or eight deaths for Stella Fortuna by Juliet Grahams, all while interweaving the gastromic allure of Kristen Harmel's The Sweetness of Forgetting. Even something as small as a blister can alter the course of a life. Such is the case for restless 19-year-old Marie Dobra in 1945 Czechoslovakia when a mere blister causes her to miss choir practice one snowy evening, thus prompting a chance encounter with young Stephen Billock A former neighbor turned World War II American soldier about to repatriate back to the United States. In the 10 days they spend together, Marie and Stephen pursue a forbidden courtship, one that her taciturn mother, Lucy, opposes because of a long buried secret regarding Stephen's family. While Marie chooses between crossing an ocean for love or surrendering to domestic duty, Lucy weighs breaking her daughter's heart against her personal anguish. Several decades later, in 1972, Marie is a middle-aged bakery owner with a daughter of her own, one who falls for a man Marie cannot accept. Haunted by her mother's secrets, Marie strives to reconcile past guilt while her daughter, home for the holidays, discovers old letters that stir up questions about Marie's relationship with the family she married into. As Marie reluctantly prepares to meet her daughter's beau, she must decide if guarding secrets in the name of maternal love may ultimately beget more harm then happiness. Told in dual timelines, Title X explores the intersection of love and duty, how it can remain both a privilege and burden for a parent to snuff one's personal dreams in order to breathe air into the aspirations of one's child. Since writing for the Stanford Daily as an undergrad, I've published personal essays in keystrokes and serve as a class correspondence for Stanford Magazine. I'm a member of the Chicago's Writers Association and Women's Fiction Writers Association association and reside in the Chicago suburbs with my husband, two young daughters, and an excessive collection of merino wool socks. Title X is my debut novel inspired by my grandparents' love and immigration story. Thank you for the privilege of your time and consideration of my manuscript, Author X. Okay, Carly, would you like to begin with this one? Absolutely. My gut instinct is that this is very good.
0: You know, I didn't really make a lot of notes. The first time that I read through it, I just read through it in, you know, one go. I wasn't kind of typing notes as I went. My main question for this one is I'm not clear on whether the woman follows the man from Czechoslovakia to the States. I wasn't clear on that. And I don't know if I was or wasn't supposed to be clear about that, but that was one thing I didn't fully figure out. Um, and I don't think it was answered in the query. Not that it has to be, but that was just a bit of a question mark for me. So I'm curious to hear what CC thinks about that. The other thing that I think needs to probably be debated as well is the paragraph told in dual timelines, title X explores the intersection of love and duty, how it can remain both a privilege and a burden for a parent to snuff one's personal dreams in order to breathe air into the aspirations of one child. I'm debating whether we need to have that or not, because I feel like that comes across in the query itself. So again, that's another
2: one for Cece. So Cece, what do you think about those two? I agree that we don't need the third body paragraph of the plot, because we already know that it's told in dual timelines since we have two previous paragraphs mentioning the two timelines. And, and yeah, I agree. I think that that's taking up space. So the author of this story was the of the giveaway that we had a few weeks ago. So I've read 50 pages of this. And this is an interesting experience because when I read this query letter, I, I didn't know, I started reading. And I was like, I know this story. And then I was like, oh, I know this story. So so that was fun. And you know, because I know a little bit of what happens, I am very confident when I say that you don't need that paragraph. And you also do need to tell us that Marie went to America because several decades later in 1915. 19- 1972, Marie is the middle-aged bakery owner living in, and then tell us where she lives in the States. Because I think that helps. I think that shows that we have not just what happened in the previous timeline, which isn't really a spoiler in my, my personal opinion, but also you know where it's going to take place. The fact that it does take place in the States in, in one of the timelines could be something that is, is relevant to an agent's interest. Another thing that I'll say is this, this is, I mentioned this to the author when we chatted, the plots mirror each other and that's obviously intentional and, and that's great. That can work really well in historical novels. I am concerned that right now the, the backstory is doing a lot of the heavy lifting for both of these plots, right? Like in both of these timelines, it's a tricky balance because so much of this is dependent on the secrets, right? Like in both of the timelines, we have secrets and the mom in both of these timelines timelines. timelines. Marie is the child in one of the timelines, but Marie is the mom in the second one, can't really reveal the secrets to the daughter. And secrets are great. I am a big fan of secrets and novels. I always want to read to find out the secrets. But it's tricky when the secrets are doing all of the heavy lifting. A great example of somebody who pulled this off really, really, really well. And if you've read the book, read it again as a masterclass. And if you haven't, you're going to have to read it twice because the first time you're going to read it just for fun is The Husband's Secrets by Leanne Moriarty. Everyone loves Big Little Lies and I do too, but The Husband's Secret is my favorite. So there is, as the title suggests, a big, big, big secret the husband is keeping. I'm not going to ruin it for anyone who hasn't read it, but you do find out. However, the reason why it worked is because there were other, other factors that play in the story, a character called Tess moved into town and that, you know, uh, tipped off the balance in the social circle. And those other conflicts contributed to the secret almost. So it wasn't just the secret doing the heavy lifting. So this is something that I, you know, I've chatted with the author about, we had a great call about this. I offered her my notes and, and I can see why it's a big challenge because if you have secrets, that's great. And I think you should keep them. I just think that you should perhaps consider making sure that the queer letter is reflecting a bit more of the present-day struggles.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Cece. All right, Carly. Okay, so for the listener,
0: we start in 1972, Illinois. And because the query started with the past, I kind of thought the novel was going to start with the past. So I'm a little bit confused on what is more important, or if this is a frame novel, like a reverse frame novel. Like I just have a lot of questions I think about structure. So this probably comes back to making that a little bit more clear in the query letter itself. I really liked what was happening because it was this mom working in a bakery and the daughter calling. And the mom's really busy, like baking and busy with her hands. The daughter is calling to ask if she can bring a boyfriend home for the holidays. And so there's this really interesting battle between, I think I've talked about this in a previous podcasts, but in dialogue, what to repeat and what is new information. And so I think that this actually does a pretty good job of explaining that we the daughter knows the mom doesn't like the boyfriend. <laughs> and but we're put in a new context of yes we know the mom doesn't like the boyfriend but now we're asking can he come home for Christmas and so I thought this was really well done of just like doubling down on information that we knew but framing it in a new way I don't like him but can we bring him home for Christmas I also felt very cringy which is like a good Some people don't like that cringy feeling you know when you're like watching TV or reading a book and you're like please don't do it I don't know if you're gonna do it are you gonna do it which was is the mom going to let boyfriend come home for Christmas and so I was really and being like is she gonna let him come home and then it turns out that she doesn't she kind of brushes it off and says no like he'll come home another time you know something's burning in the oven I have to go I really liked that I think that there's such a urge to be gentle with your characters and put them in situations that are comfortable and this was a great way of setting it up where we're going straight into an uncomfortable situation (laughs) you know the mom's probably making things more complicated for her relationship with her daughter thinking that she's doing the right thing so yeah I'm gonna make a terrible pun here but I feel like we turned the temperature up to 400 created a really spicy hot scene with you know this this fiery tension between the mom and the daughter so bravo well done
1: awesome thanks Carly okay Cece what were your thoughts on those opening pages I liked the
2: pun I want to say that (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I want to start off by saying that again, I've read more of this. The writing is excellent. This writer can write, congratulations. I kept highlighting a whole bunch of sentences that I loved. Again, this is when I read the 50 pages. There wasn't a single sentence that was awkward or needed work from a craft perspective. It's like, she has a gift. Congratulations, you're very lucky. All you have to do is work on story structure if any of the notes resonate with you, but you don't have to learn how to write. And that is not true for everyone. So you're a very talented person. I really, really liked the pages as you can tell. I do think that, you know, the purpose of a prologue and because I read more, I know this is a prologue is to intrigue, right? Like you wanna make me go, oh my gosh. And actually I thought that the chapter one, which is not here, but that I read was stronger. So either keep the chapter one as the beginning, which is which is actually kind of cool because this speaks to Carly's note, right? Because she said, well, when I read the query I thought that the past, like the more past, <laughs> was, was more important. So either keep chapter one or just, I think, you know, Carly said the heat was turned up to, up to 400, maybe turn it up to 600 or something in the prologue. You know, I don't know. I thought chapter one was really, really, really strong too. So I think I would just keep it there. This author is very talented when it comes to inserting us right away into a scene. This was something that she did multiple times in all the scenes that I read. You know, when we talk about the building analogy, like where do you walk in through the building? It can be through a door. It can be through a window. It can be through the roof. Shower knows the right way to to walk into a building in the beginning of every single scene so so yeah bravo this was excellent
1: awesome right so that's it for today's books with hogs and now we move on to today's guest and then just to let you know what we've got coming up Carly and Cece will be running a webinar called writing the perfect first five pages and that will be on the 15th of July at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Just to tell you a bit more about the course, literary agents are tasked with recognizing great books quickly, which is why the importance of the first five pages of a story cannot be overestimated. No matter the genre, the perfect five pages will draw your readers in from the very start and compel them to read on. If you would like to learn more about what the webinar will entail, head to Carly and Cece's Instagram pages where you can get more information and where you'll be able to register. CC is available for one-on-one meetings and written critiques via Manuscript Academy, you can search for that on ManuscriptAcademy.com, Cecilia Lira. Manuscript Academy is a year-round online writers' conference, and you can make an appointment with Cece for her to take a look at your first 10 pages, discuss your work, whatever the case may be is. I have various courses that will be coming up. Please go to my website, BiancaMoray.com, to have a look at that schedule and to make any bookings. And then finally, we have started a Kofi page, there are a lot of costs associated with running a podcast, so if you are able to make a donation to us there at Kofi, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find the link on my Twitter profile or on my Instagram page or have a look on the website under biancamaray.com under the podcast section.
0: rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today.
2: Hi everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
1: Today's guest is an author, the creator of the blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy, and host of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? Her newest book, Don't Overthink It, Make Easier Decisions, Stop Second-Guessing, and Bring More Joy to Your Life, came out March 3rd, 2020. Her second book, I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life, explores the way our books shape, define, enchant, and even sometimes infuriate us. It's the perfect gift for any bibliophile and will command an honored place on the overstuffed bookshelves of any book lover. Reading People, How Seeing the World Through the Lens of Personality Changes Everything is another book which digs into Anne's experience with the personality frameworks she loves the most and walks you through seven different frameworks explaining the basics in a way you can actually understand. Modern Mrs. Darcy, which derives its name from a Jane Austen book, is a lifestyle blog for nerds who appreciate Anne's modus operandi of approaching old familiar ideas from new and fresh angles. While Modern Mrs. Darcy isn't strictly a book blog, Anne writes frequently about books and reading. Her book lists are among her most popular posts. She is well known by readers, authors, and publishers as a tastemaker. In 2016, she launched her podcast, What Should I Read Next?, a popular show devoted to literary matchmaking, bibliography. Therapy and all things books and reading. Anne lives in Louisville, Kentucky with her husband, four children, and a yellow lab named Daisy. It's my pleasure to welcome Anne Bogle. Anne, welcome to the show. What an honor to get to interview you. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Just for our listeners, the way I was introduced to Anne was in 2017, my debut novel launched, Hum, if you don't know the words, and I knew nothing about publishing. I knew nothing about like book influences and things like that. Bookstagram wasn't even a thing then. And I was notified that Anne had chosen my book for her summer reading guide. And I, at that point in time, did not realize what a big deal this was. And then people started reaching out to me and saying, I would never have read your book if Anne hadn't have told me to read it. And then I started following Anne and realizing what a huge deal it was. So for me, really, this feels like a three 60 degree moment to get to be chatting to you because you were so pivotal in putting my book in the hands of readers who would never have known about it in the first place. Well, that is so kind. Thank you.
3: And I always love to hear when readers find their way to the right book by whatever means it takes. I know that I'm always thrilled to find that book that I might not have picked up if a fellow reader hadn't said, I think this might be right for you. And then I find out it is. And yeah. I just loved your work. So I'm so glad I'm just, that just fills my heart with joy Thank that people you. are finding it and getting to
1: read it yeah you know there's this thing that is like it's it's kind of dating or matchmaking for books and I'm the same you know people will say to me oh what book do you recommend to everyone and I always go I don't recommend just one book to everyone mm. there's certain books that I love that resonate with me and I tell everyone about them but I do try and you know I say certain friends love these kinds of books and isn't it so rewarding when you recommend a book and they come back and they were like oh my word this was <gasps> the the book I needed to read. It's so rewarding.
3: It really is because you are not just a writer, you're a reader. And so you know
1: how satisfying that is to find yeah. a book like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like every writer needs to be a reader first and foremost. So we will discuss shortly your books that you've come out with as well, but I want to really especially focus on you as a reader. So could you first tell us about Modern Mrs. Darcy, how that came to be and mm. what Inspired that and how that's evolved over the years.
3: I love to modern Mrs. Darcy is my blog. It's been around since 2011. It was the product of a one of those New Year's conversations that happened over takeout sushi and a bottle of wine late at night. It used to be after the kids were in bed, but now they stay up later than I do because that's (laughs) what changes in 10 years. But my husband said you should start a blog this year, and I said I don't read blogs. What are you talking about? But I'm persuadable, and half an hour later I was brainstorming categories and thinking, Hey, this could be fun. It felt like forever at the time, the gap between origin and actually starting to post things, but it was really only a couple of months. So in February, 2011, I put up the first post and I never intended to talk about books as much as I came to do, but on a blog, you get to talk about what you want to talk about. And I realized that my way into discussing the issues I was thinking about was often through the lens of a book I'd read or what I was reading now that got me thinking about something that I wanted to write about in that format and talk about with with fellow readers. And 10 years later, here we are.
1: It's so amazing that you say you didn't intend to talk about books so much because the mm. name of your blog, I mean, let's talk about the inspiration for the name of the blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. I knew I wanted to write about the intersection of the
3: timeless and the timely, the the topics that have always mattered, especially mattered to women. That's specifically what I was thinking of, but what do? how do they matter to us right now? And so I wanted to capture the things that don't change and the things that do, and I'd love Jane Austen. So modern Mrs. Darcy it was.
1: In terms of Jane Austen, just in terms of Mr. Darcy, I have arguments with people about the actors that have played these roles in- etc and who the best ones are and and everyone gets so worked up about these things so okay so let's talk about your podcast so if the blog started all the way back then Mm. what should I read next when did that become a natural evolution because I laughed so much when you said that you weren't someone who read blogs but you started a blog I was never someone who listened to podcasts and yet I started a podcast and I'm not quite sure how that happened so (laughs) how normally uh, people would interview me for their podcasts when my books came out and they would go, here's the link to the podcast. And I'd go, thank you, but I can't stand the sound of my own voice. So I'm not going (laughs) to listen to it. And hopefully it went well. So for you, how did that happen?
3: Oh, that's really funny. It started, you used the phrase literary matchmaking earlier, and that's how it started. It was something I did on my blog in 2013 or 2014. I started talking about books on the internet. And when you do that, people start to ask you for book recommendations. And so many times people would say, Anne, just real quick, tell me a great book to read. And I'd say, what do you like? (laughs) What are you interested in? And they'd say, no, 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 just tell me a great book. But you know, Bianca, that reading is personal and timing is everything. And you can't just, I can tell you what I like, but I can't necessarily tell you what you'd like without having a conversation about that. So one Sunday morning, I put up a post on the blog that said, I've been thinking a lot about how to give you great books that you'll really enjoy. And let's try something. And I asked readers, to leave comments, sharing three books they love, one book they don't, and what they've been reading lately. And I'd recommend three books they may enjoy reading next. And it was fun on the blog, but I found myself really wanting to ask follow-up questions and say, have you read this? And are you willing to go to this genre? And what do you, what do you think? You know, tell me more, but that's hard to do. There's, there's a lot of friction. If you're doing that in blog comments or by email. Meanwhile, I was thinking, Hey, I have some friends who are starting podcasts. That seems fun, but I have no idea what I'd podcast about. And it took me a while, but I finally realized those are the same idea. Like that, that frustration I was having doing something in the written form format would actually be brilliant in the podcast format. And What Should I Read Next was born not long after, but that's still the format of the show. Every week a guest tells me three books they love, one book they don't, and what they're reading
1: now. And I recommend three reads that I think they might find really enjoyable. So for listeners of our show, if you're not listening to Anne's show, you absolutely have to, because in order to be a really good writer, you need to be a voracious reader. And I always say to my listeners, don't be snobbish in terms of the genres that you are reading because every single genre has got something to teach writer in terms of craft, in terms of pacing, in terms of characterization, whatever the case may be is. So just going from that and something I want to ask you about Mm -hmm. is your summer reading guide because I see online how excited people get every single year. They start to do a countdown to you releasing your (laughs) summer reading guide. That's how excited they get about it. And book cloud Look at it and everyone looks at it. So, how do you approach that? Because that is obviously not something that happens in a short period of time. And something that I want our listeners to know as well is how far ahead the kind of marketing and PR machines on books mm. have to work. You know, so if a book is coming out in the summer, advanced reader copies of these books go out months in advance to try and work up buzz for these books. So, Could you take us through your approach of when you start getting these books and how you start to narrow down the kind of books that you are going to choose for the summer reading guide that year? I'm impressed
3: at all the deductions you made because you do know how it works. And yes, it is a long-term process. I start reading a little earlier every year. I mean, I was reading books last October, say, that were going to be in this year's guide, but they're not just releases that come out in the summer. I like to feature a nice mix of titles to look forward to, but also titles that will already be stocked on the shelves at your library in the middle of May. So really the summer reading guide mostly contains books published from March through July. I think we have one August title this year and maybe two that come out prior to March, 2021. But yeah, I start reading in October and read the bulk of the books from like January to
1: mid-April. So in terms of the books that come to your attention, do you have relationships with certain PR people, Mm. publicists at certain publishers that they kind of know your taste? Is it just a case of everybody just sends you the books that are coming out and they just hope for the best that something's going to resonate with you? How does that process work?
3: I do get lucky and have books show up up on my doorstep. I mean, I I get a lot of, of book mail. Some of it I ask for, but a whole lot of it, it just appears. And sometimes I have absolutely no idea why. Sometimes, you know, Bianca, because you write books, you get books in the mail. Sometimes I get a book and a brown paper envelope with no other information. And I I don't know from whence it came. You know, my assistant requests books now, but my gut instinct is that most of the books I, I've read about, I've heard about, I've spotted in Publishers Weekly, I follow the author author. And I know it's coming out and I ask the publisher to send it to me. So if I do already have relationships in place, they'll go "Anne, wonderful, here you go. And if you don't, you have to ask really, really nicely. And still, I still can't get everything I'd like to read because that is a problem. Like sometimes people say, why didn't you put X title in the summer reading guide? And sometimes the answer is I read it and it might be perfect for you, but it wasn't perfect for me. And I get to share books. I love here, but sometimes the answer is the publisher wouldn't send it to me. So I haven't, I haven't read it and it doesn't come out. Until June. But I try to read what I'm excited about. And that doesn't mean books I already know about. It means perusing what is coming down the pipeline and what sounds interesting. And I look for a good mix of titles that are the kinds of books that I expect to read and love. Like I know, for example, that I love a good multi-generational family story or a really intricately plotted mystery, but also titles that I might not pick up otherwise, but that I have reason to believe are really skillfully crafted.
1: So let's talk about that craft side of things, because I feel like writers can learn so much through reading. Most of the craft of writing can be learned purely through reading. You know, so many of my listeners say, I can't afford to do creative writing courses. I can't afford to Mm -hmm. do an MFA. And I say to them, you really don't have to, you just have to pay attention when you read the books that you love. And when you feel like something is brilliantly paced, say to yourself, how is it that this author, managed to keep me turning pages. Or if you read something that you feel like the characterization just resonates with you, say to yourself, what is it about how the author wrote this that particularly struck a chord with me? So when you approach reading all of these books, when you decide what you're going to include, have you got specific genres that you are more attracted to or not? Is it not so much the genre that matters to you? Is it a certain kind of characterization? what is it that a storyteller does that just grabs your attention and resonates with you? Oh, it's all of these things which is kind of tricky because i mean what
3: i try to do is bust readers out of their genre rut like they say that they only love mysteries and i think if you love mysteries there's all kinds of books out there that you will also appreciate but the nice thing about only loving mysteries bianca is there's so many books being published and if you're only looking in one section of the bookstore it does make your life simpler but i found that there are titles in practically every genre that i can enjoy and i don't want to just stick to the one section of the bookstores i love above all, a good story that is well told. I want a story where the characters are there for a reason, where they feel like real people, where I feel like I understand them and the choices that they make make sense on the page. I do like a story with narrative drive, but I will settle in and enjoy beautiful prose that is more quietly introspective, more of a character study than an action-packed story. What I really love is to close a book and think, wow, I have no idea how the author put that together, but that was an amazing experience. And when an author can do that, I often find that I want to go back to the beginning and read it again to see how they did it. Because you've said how you can learn so much of what you need to know about being a writer from being a reader, but so often the craft doesn't reveal itself on the first read. This is what I find as a reader. The first read, I think that was a great book. How did they do it? And on the second read, I start to notice how they did it and how they laid out the story because when you start a novel, you don't know how it ends and you don't know the big thing that's going to happen at the halfway mark or the 40% mark. But knowing that the second time and going back and reading it again, knowing the lay of the land and now exploring it more closely, that's what I find really satisfying about reading as a writer. And if on the second read, I think, oh, wow, I just, that was so smart the way they did that. I know that that's a book that'll keep pulling me back.
1: Yeah, that's such good advice. There are certain books that I have read multiple, multiple times. And like you say, the first time you just get sucked in and you're just there for Mm -hmm. the story to unfold and to get to know the characters. But it is so amazing to be able to look at how an author is making it look so seamless, because let's be honest, we, most of us begin writing because we've read something that a writer has made look so easy. It's the same as there was a a quote this week on Twitter and I, I can't remember it exactly. Joanne Harris posted it and and she said about how it's like ballet dancers you know you just see this beautiful movement this fluid movement of this graceful ballet dancer and they make it look so easy but what you don't see is their toes that are bleeding oh, from weeks and weeks of dancing and preparing for this role and how their feet are kind of ruined by the shoes you just see the seamless graceful movement mm-hmm. and I feel it's the same with writers so we see the end product we see this book that just feels feels like it wrote itself, but we don't see the years that went into it. We don't see all the rough first drafts. We don't see all the pages that were edited out, et cetera. So certainly I agree with you in terms of coming back to a book and saying, okay, how did they weave this alchemy? How did they make it look so completely and utterly seamless? And you say that you love these kind of intergenerational family sagas. I love them too. And my favorite in that genre is the most fun we ever had by Claire Lombardo. Uh, When I interviewed her, I I was like, how did you do this? This was amazing. And she said, "Do you know how many pages I wrote that I just wrote to get to know the characters that I knew were Mm -hmm. never even going to find their way into this novel? And that to me is like commitment to just write pages and pages that aren't going to be there simply because, you know, this is how you get to know your characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You said it was
3: seamless. And I have been told, encouraged, I think when I'm feeling despair, like, oh my, gosh, I don't know how to put a sentence together, let alone a 300 page book, is it's good to know that if you are an avid reader, then it can feel a little overwhelming to sit down and write because you are well aware how many wonderful books are out there. And your first draft is going to be garbage, especially in comparison to a finished novel that you really love and respect. And that's always good to keep in mind. You don't, you don't see the nobody's work finishes or okay. no, nobody's work goes down down on the page the first time looking the way it did when you read it and loved it. And you know, what's so funny is you think, oh my gosh, what I wouldn't give to read the first draft of, let's just say the most fun we ever had, because you said you'd love that novel. I mean, I don't know Claire Lombardo's work that well, but most authors' first drafts, you don't actually want to read them. You're going to be so bored by page four. You just don't want to go on. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely. So let's talk about your own books. And how did you then make that transition from being this voracious reader? somebody who championed other writers mm. to writing your own books and what was that like for you
3: oh well there's good and bad things to writing words on the internet like you do when you blog I mean the lovely thing is you get to you get to write as often as you like and when you publish those words you get immediate feedback when you write a book you don't you don't know what the world is going to be like 18 to 24 months later when it finally comes out and when you're writing on the internet you don't have to wait 18 to 24 months you just hit publish and people can start reading it right away. And that's really fun. But also you don't get to, or at least the way I was writing, I didn't get to stick with one topic for an extended length of time and develop a longer train of thought. And I was really intrigued by the possibility of exploring a topic in depth the way you do with a book. So my first book was published in 2017 and I've written, let's see, I have three out in the world right now. And one of them is actually about the reading life. So most pertinent to today's conversation. It came out. In 2018, it's called I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life. And it's an essay collection for readers by an avid reader. So if you love to read, I hope you'll see yourself in that collection. But it's funny, how much is the same and how much is the different? When you're a writer, you're a writer, you're writing words, you make them better. This is how it works. And yet writing a book is, I mean, I wanted to do it because I wanted to learn what the process was like. And it's wonderful and maddening by
1: turns and sometimes at the same time. Did you have to put a proposal together and send it to a publisher? Or was it a case of that you had such an amazing platform that publishers were just kind of going, Anne, please write a book and we'll publish it for you? <laughs> um, I
3: was fortunate in the sense for writing on the internet that I I had agents approach me fairly regularly. So that part was nice, but no, I had to do the whole full nonfiction proposal or you have to do all the sales writing, which is completely different than probably the writing you expect to put inside your book. And I had to do my introduction and a couple of sample chapters and the full outline. And I mean, it was a wonderful process because when you have to put together a document like that, you figure out what you really want to write about, even though my finished book varies um, greatly from the proposal. I mean, some of the, some of the bones are there, but it certainly changed, but it was, it was a lot. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to put together a nonfiction proposal. I don't say that as a bad way, but just as a, if you're, if you're wondering what to expect, they're pretty substantial documents that take a long time to put together.
1: Yeah. So your third, like the, the last one you did, did you find it gets easier each time? Because we have a whole bunch of listeners who want to mm-hmm. be writing various kinds of nonfiction. The other one to be writing memoir or essay collections, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so they often ask about those kinds of proposals. So do you find it, it gets, it's gotten easier for you with time as you've kind of learned how to crystallize your thoughts? Or do you find that it's difficult every single time?
3: I did not have to put together a full proposal for my third book since I was continuing with the current publisher. I mean, I still went through a lot of the process because I'd learned how valuable it was. Some things get easier and some things don't. I think knowing I've done this before, I can do it again, that does make it easier. And getting comfortable with parts of the process emotionally, I think that's really valuable. This is the same for fiction and non, I imagine. So I don't know what your experience has been like, Bianca, but just knowing that sometimes you're gonna hate everything you put down and you can just ignore that right now and keep going and you'll edit it later and it's fine. I'm really grateful by working on the projects I'm working on now that I just know like the emotional roller coaster is part of the process and it's distinct from the writing. And I can keep writing instead of thinking like, oh, these inner, this inner talk must be a sign that I need to start over on the new. It, it doesn't, it's just part of the process, but also every new idea requires new questions and new solutions that I haven't come up with before, you know? And, and I keep hearing that every book presents its own unique challenges and you don't always know what those are going to be. I think I think I have a lot more confidence that I have the resources both internally and in, you know, by talking to smart writerly people to,
1: to overcome the obstacles, but it's never easy. Uh, yeah. And you do quite a lot of research for some of your books. I mean, your book on personality, that must have been quite research intensive. How did you approach that? Oh, well, I'm a big nerd. So I thought it was pretty fun, <laughs> um, with lots of index cards and spreadsheets, uh, a then- drive doc. Did, did you do that all before you started working or was research a part of your process as you were working? Because this is a question we mm-hmm. get a lot. Should I research everything up front and then begin writing? Should I research while writing? Like what worked for you? I've done a lot of
3: research up front. I mean, I've done research to, to both determine the scope and also figure out what I want to address in every chapter and just see see if there's any, I want to use all the metaphors, see if there's anything that needs to be included that isn't yet encompassed in my outline line. But then sometimes when you're working at a question arises, and sometimes it's a small one where you realize, "Oh, I need to talk about this small thing." But sometimes you realize, "Oh, I need a whole new chapter or two that I I didn't realize were going to be important here." But it turns out I've got, I've got some more work to do. So both and I think was my answer.
1: Do you think you'll ever write fiction, or do you think you are now firmly a nonfiction writer? I don't know. I'm intrigued by the
3: idea. I'm not sure I have a fiction brain, but I like the idea of exploring it and finding out. Yeah,
1: I would love to read that. So in case you. Con- Considering it, would would love would love to read that. Okay, so we're reaching the end of our episode. It's it's been so amazing chatting with you. Have you got a few books that you could recommend to our listeners that you feel like they should be reading over the next few months? Because you know, you're an influencer, you're a tastemaker. So what are the books that you feel across perhaps different genres that that you think people should be reading? Ooh, okay. Got this box of summer reading guide
3: books at my feet. I will say I know that. This isn't like a hidden gem or anything, but I adored Michelle Zauner's Crying in H-Mart, her memoir about her turbulent relationship she had with her Korean mother and the the grief she endured when she died very suddenly of, uh, I think it was stomach cancer. So I hope you can tell like this is emotionally heavy, but beautiful and intimate and packed with family and Korean food. And oh, I just loved it so much. My dad died in August. And I read it just a few months after, and that ended up being really good timing for me. Um, I really appreciated her detailing her own relationship on the page. Like the first line is ever since my mother died, I cry in H Mart. And I was like, you're going to have to tell me
1: what H Mart is, but I think I can relate to this. Oh what's it's like else? it's I think for everybody else it's like just you know replace H Mart with some other public place, you know, and people will be able to understand it mm-hmm. in terms of grief. Yeah. Trying at Target,
3: but yeah. that's not quite as evocative. Yeah. And I really loved Sparks Like Stars by Nadia Hashimi. It's a historical novel that is set, um, has two timelines, one mostly contemporary, one uh during and following a very real coup in Afghanistan that I think took place in 1978. So the coup is is real. The characters are fictional. And I really love a historical novel that exposes a, a period of history that is just wholly unfamiliar to me because I, I didn't learn about it in school or there haven't been a lot of novels about that era. And I really loved it for that reason. And I just really like Nadia Hashimi's voice. It's authoritative yet um, really gentle and personal at the same time. And I really like that.
1: And was that the same characters, but dual timelines or was it different characters in terms of the dual timeline?
3: the same character. Okay. So 30 years later, she's got to go deal with the trauma she buried in the past.
1: For a lot of listeners as well, that's a question we get a lot in terms of mm-hmm. dual timelines, etc. So that's definitely a book then you want to read if Anne says it was done particularly well there. And one last recommendation, what can you give us?
3: Ooh, well, you were just asking structural questions. I do love a book with an intricate structure that works. And in that sense, I was really pleasantly surprised uh, to find that in Taylor Jenkins Reid's new book, Malibu Rising. Since this is a writing podcast and people care about such things, the structure was just so fun. So this is a multi-generational family saga. It reminded me a lot of Claire Lombardo's The Most Fun We Ever Had because there are four siblings whose lives are all messed up in no small part, not because their parents' relationship was perfect and they'll never live up to it, but because their dad is a rock star and a narcissist who was no good husband, no good father. He's kind of disappeared, but of course it's It's all going to come to a head over a 24 hour period in Malibu at the party of the year, but the structure, let me see if I can explain this well. So there's two timelines. One is the day of the party and you get it in chapters hour by hour, 7am, 8am, 9am, 10am. But those present day chapters are, which happened in the eighties, not actually the present day. Those are intercut with one decade at a time from the parents past. So you get the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, and you, you move forward until I think halfway through the party day, the timelines converge and all you got from that point is one wild party. But I really appreciated how this timeline affected the pacing. The backstory wasn't slow and the party wasn't just a runaway train and how it made you really feel like, oh, this is how these characters got to be where they are. Because you just read about it, not 200 pages ago, but like three pages ago.
1: That's, I must be honest. I was one of the very few people who could not get into Daisy Jones and the Six. There was something about the structure of Daisy Jones and the Mm -hmm. Six that I just couldn't get into because I mean, it it reads like one long interview and perhaps it's all the telling for me as opposed Mm -hmm. to dramatization. But I adored The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. And so, you know, I wasn't sure about Malibu Rising, but now you've, now it's going on my to be read pile. You've already intrigued me in terms of that brilliant structure. Sounds amazing. It's fun.
3: And yes, this one is definitely like Evelyn Hugo. And actually the terrible father in Malibu Rising is I think husband number three in Evelyn Hugo. He's not memorable. He doesn't stick around for long, but he was there. Oh, that's amazing. So it's like interconnected. Yeah, I thought that was a fun little connection between the books.
1: Did you enjoy the structure
3: of Daisy Jones and the Six? I I mean, I liked, I liked that book, but I didn't love that book. And I really loved Malibu Rising. And I wasn't expecting to, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe I was thinking, oh, you know, this is the one the publishers are pushing hard, blah, blah, blah. Because we know that, you know, Some books are amazing and they get big marketing budgets and some books get big marketing budgets and I don't necessarily find them amazing. And I wasn't sure which this was, but I knew that it was getting hyped. And when a book is getting really hyped, it's easy for it to feel like it's overhyped. So I think I went in with a little more cynicism than I usually do, but I loved it. I thought it was super fun.
1: Wonderful. So I'm definitely adding that to my list. Okay, so we are over time and thank you so much. It's been such a delight getting to chat with you. Thank you for all that you do for reading readers and for writers. Because as someone who was a debut author, I was so touched by having somebody like you out in the world who is championing my work. And, you know, on behalf of all debut authors out there, I would like to thank you for all the work you do to put our books in the hands of readers who would otherwise not pick them up.
3: Thank you so much. But let me just say it's an honor and a privilege to be part of connecting readers with the right book, especially when it's a book I loved as much as yours. And I can't wait to read your next one, Bianca.
1: And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.